Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Reed, and I am a naturopathic doctor. And today I am joined by Dr. Diane Mueller. Dr. Mueller is a fellow naturopathic doctor, and she has been working with folks suffering from complex chronic illnesses, I believe with mostly a focus on chronic Lyme, but um, I'm going to find out more about her background and history coming up soon. And I thought that it would be a great chat to just see what her approach is and um, just talk a little bit a line for the next uh, 30 to 45 minutes. So um, <clears throat> Dr. Mueller is just um, waiting in the waiting room here for the from the Zoom meeting. So I'm going to pause the recording and I'll be back with Dr. Mueller in just a moment. All right, folks, so I'm now joined by Dr. Diane Mueller. Dr. Diane, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Raid. It's really a pleasure to have this conversation with you. I'm looking forward to our chat. I know we were just chatting and we're kind of cut from a similar cloth and similar experiences getting into the world of complex chronic illness. So I'm anxious to pick your brain. Um, just before we jump into the questions, um, would you mind just sharing with listeners uh, a little bit about yourself, who you are, and how you got involved with complex chronic illness patients? Yeah, of course. So just like we were chatting about a moment ago, I had my own version of dealing with complex chronic issues. I wound up having pain and fibromyalgia and brain fog and all these symptoms so bad that at one point I had crazy memory loss. I was forgetting where I lived. I had pain so bad. The way I would describe it is like it was get, like my leg was getting sawed off. And it was just getting so severe, the symptoms that I was actually at one point researching, moving to a deserted island, thinking that I was dying. And I just had to find like a cheap little hut someplace to live out my days in peace. And that's when I found that I had Lyme disease and mold illness and, uh, you know, about 20 other chronic toxins and infections and these sorts of things. So that was kind of my own personal journey. And then in my practice, when I first initially started, it was just seeing whoever came into my office. And so it's a lot of chronic fatigue and a lot of fibro and a lot of brain fog and digestive issues and Initially, I just started doing some of the very basic foundational stuff that's you know so important that we do as natural paths, work on the adrenals and the thyroid and clear infections and pathogens in the gut and heal leaky gut and all of those kind of things. And what wound up happening is people were not getting better. And so like myself, then I started testing people more and more for Lyme and mold and was finding an abundance of it. And then I was starting to see people recover from these complicated diseases. And once that happened, that's when the, you know, kind of the niche of working with these complicated scenarios started opening up because I just started finding that more people were finding me because I was able to, like you, find some of these root causes that other people were just not, you know, not discovering in their own lab testing. Makes a lot of sense. And um, just if in don't want to get too personal here. If you don't want to go there, it's okay. But I'm sure folks would be curious. And I'm, I'm curious because you're obviously a, a, a success story because uh, you look and sound like a healthy individual, which is sometimes looks can be deceiving. But assuming that you've come a long way from where you were, I hope, um, would you mind sharing some of the things that were the most um, kind of pivotal for you in your in your health journey? Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm very fine with going personal. And you are correct. I'm in my mid-40s and I feel way better in my mid-40s than I did in my mid-20s. So that's a pretty exciting thing to be able to say. I run, I snowboard 30 days a year, I lift weights. I'm just, I'm super, super active. And 
really as far as like the fundamental, if I could say one fundamental thing, if I had to distill it down to one, which I know we want to be careful about because usually in these complicated scenarios, it's dozens of oftentimes of imbalances and abnormalities we need to correct. But probably the most pivotal thing was moving out of a moldy place. And that's where I see, you know, in like the, like the Lyme community, so many people that make their way to my office have seen dozens and dozens and dozens of practitioners and they want to try like, you know, the next therapy they've heard of, you know, the, one of the hottest topics seems to be right now, like SOT therapy. And so everybody wants to try SOT therapy. And one of the things it's like, I really work to help people understand is like myself, it's like, yes, it's good to have many tools in our toolbox. And that's super important to keep an open mind about all the new therapies that are coming out. But most of the time I find that if people have tried dozens of therapies and they're not getting better, there's there's another piece of the puzzle. And for me, as well as I what I see in so many people, it's living in such a toxic home environment from an environmental toxin scenario and the inflammation that comes from that, you know, that's really preventing them from healing, not only from Lyme, but from, the, you know, kind of the whole chronic illness picture. That's really well said. And sorry for the delay there. My kids are being so loud upstairs. It's a snow day. So I'm, oh. I'm doing this from my basement. And so trying to be smooth and it's not being smooth at all, but they're being really noisy. Um, so uh, I couldn't have said that better myself. And it, it's really great. And um, I'll, I'll say refreshing to hear a clinician just come out and say like, yeah, if you've like seen a dozen clinicians and tried a million things to go after like, you know, Lyme or whatever the one thing is. And like, if you're still not better, or you've hit a plateau. It's like, it's probably not that you're just, you haven't had the right IV or the right antibiotic yet. It's probably that there's some other thing that's going on that's been missed. And yeah, my practice um, mold is oftentimes um, a missing piece of the puzzle, but um, yeah, very, very well said. Um, I'm just wondering, and this might've been a semantics thing. So if so, we can just move, move right along. But um, you mentioned about like kind of a toxic um, environment in the home and um, of course, mycotoxins, um, you know, very, very important to be aware of. Are there other toxins that you've found that uh, beyond mycotoxins that are like contaminating a person's home or, or is it just mostly the mycotoxins? Yeah, it wasn't a semantics thing. So thanks for following back up on that. So I do see in my own personal experience, my feeling is with what I've seen clinically is that mycotoxins are the most common and, and sometimes like the largest imprint on people, but it can be a wide variety of things, right? So you know, it's like in Colorado, we have to worry about radon. There's obviously things that get into our soil. I've had situations where all of a sudden glyphosates are really high in a patient's urine. And like this one patient I'm thinking about, we're like, why, is, why are glyphosates spiking? And she learned, she was living in an apartment complex and learned that just earlier that year, the complex had added some additional pesticides to their spraying process. And there were more glyphosates in actually her air. And then also, you know, when I think about home too, I'm also thinking about not necessarily what's like in the air and growing in the walls, but also like, what are we choosing from our home care products, our beauty products? Are we filtering our water? All of these kind of things. And, you know, I think in my mind, that's where it really gets into the genetic component and why I really like some of the new tests on the market around not just looking at genetics that are predisposing people to the biotoxins from things like Lyme and mold, but also the genetics that are showing that, oh, for certain individuals, 
they might have a tendency for glyphosates or pesticides or BPAs from plastic to build up more than others. Because then I think we can translate that down into what day-to-day -day lifestyle choices we need to spend more money on and more time because we're genetically predisposed to the buildup. And other things, when we're not genetically predisposed, it's like, well, it's still good to do. It's still good to you know live as close to a toxic-free life as possible. And I say that humorously because we can't ever live a toxic free life, but it's, but it really does help us make those choices when we understand the genetics. So yeah, I appreciate you following up with that. It really wasn't semantics. It's like looking at not only like what is happening in the home, that's just there that almost happens in almost like this victim type of way where it's like the mole grows. We didn't really do anything. The radon's there. It wasn't a choice we made. So there's those types of things that almost like happen to us. And then there's the environmental toxins in our home that really happen just because of the choices we're making because we don't realize the impact they're having. Mm -hmm. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm just wondering, circling back to the genetics, um, are there particular SNPs that uh, come to mind? Like what, what, uh, could you give some examples of some of those genes that would have an impact? Yeah. I mean, there's two different things. I mean, one, we have like the SNP scenario, right? So we have things like our CBS mutations, right? With a CBS mutation, we might not make as much as you know, much of glutathione, for example, and glutathione is used so much for detox across the board. It's one of our most important detox agents. So there's definitely that. I think there's so many people that go crazy over the MTHFR conversation. Mm -hmm. I, while I definitely think MTHFR is very important, I have a little bit of a different perspective than a lot of people out there, which is, I just hear so many people say like, I can't detox if I have this. And I really like, you know, to reorient people because of like my feeling when I look at biochemistry pathways and I look at what happens when we, we can't, when this gene causes us to not activate folate and folate's used for detoxification is that their body has a lot of check and balance options, right? So it's like, it does slow things down. It does have potential to impact, but it doesn't mean like detox is completely shut off and somebody is completely screwed for their life either. It's So I look at it as kind of like both and it's important and it's not the only variable. So yeah, CBS is also really important. Like I mentioned, you know, there's like, there's a ton of others. There's like, there's SNPs that really make a difference with pesticides. And some of what I also look at, they're like Vibrant Wellness is a company that I love, and they have a fairly new genetic test out that really is looking at these SNPs and the RSIDs down to the level where they will, they're not going to come back and say like, oh, it's a CBS mutation. They're actually going to look further down and say, because of the SNP, it's actually a BPA or because of the SNP, it's actually a pesticide and be a lot more specific than just saying something like glutathione or, you know, folate, for example. So I really like the work they do because I think it, it breaks it down to even a more molecular level from an actionable standpoint. So people know it's not just about taking glutathione, it's about actually avoiding that particular plastic or avoiding that particular pesticide. Right. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I think your thoughts largely mirror my own, um, in that, um, yeah, like I, I would certainly have a, a cringe response if a patient came in saying, oh, like I've got the MTHFR gene, like I can't detox full stop. It's like, oh, no, no, definitely, definitely not the case. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I think I, I definitely would mirror your thoughts on that. I think that's really well said. Um, I'm just wondering about the vibrant wellness panel. So is it mostly, um, 
ultimately kind of tells you which chemicals you might have the most issue with. And then I think, as you were saying earlier, the main additional step you could take there would be say, oh, if you have a hard time you know, dealing with phthalates. You should really avoid phthalates like the plague because they're going to give you the most trouble. You want to avoid VOCs too, but maybe for you, they're not as big of a deal. Like, is that kind of the, the punchline? Yeah, exactly. I look at like the environmental toxin urine tests that tell us like what's in our body. I look at that as like present step around like, okay, you have a buildup of, of say aflatoxin, you know, the mold toxin, or you have a buildup of the phthalates, you know, like you're, like you're saying, like if we have buildup of those from an environmental toxin test, and that tells us actionably right now, what we need to do to get them out. But then the genetic test tells us, okay, these are our predisposed problems. So it tells us more from like a future oriented preventative step, what we need to make sure we do so that we're not having buildups occur in, in the future. So I, I really look at them as like, okay, present versus future orientation, as far as how we, you know, formulate plans actionably. So that's what I like is because it's not just about get the stuff out, but it's like, Oh, preventatively lifestyle. Like, what do I need to focus on the most? What do I need to put the most effort in, in the future? Like somebody that has a tendency for some of the plastics and the chemicals and plastics to build up in their body, you know, from a genetic perspective, that person better make extra sure that, okay, they are out of water and they stop at a gas station. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, ever, nobody should drink out of plastic water bottles as a general rule, but some people might, it's like, okay, you do it here and there, you might be able to get away with it. But the person that tends to have those plastics built up in your body, it's worth the extra dollar or two if you're like, end up at a gas station to buy water, to buy the water that comes in the glass, you know, the glass container and making decisions based upon, you know, based upon where you're at from a genetic standpoint that way. That's very well said. And oh man, it's trying to time the water when you're still talking. I, was like, oh, <laughs> I know as, as I was wrapping up, I was like, I think I'm not, not going to get this totally <laughs> right. <laughs> I could see that. <laughs> had, had some homemade, uh, uh, wonderful jerky um, and it was very spicy. So I'm like, oh, this is bad timing right before coming on a podcast, but it's lunchtime here. So you got to do what you got to oh, yeah. do. Anyways, right. <laughs> the comedy of errors continues here with doing a podcast from home. Um, <laughs> so I, I do a follow-up question for you about the genetic side of things, but uh, just before we move on, I'll just quickly mention, as per usual, uh, nothing that's said during an Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast is intended as medical advice. This is all for informational purposes only, and if anyone listening needs medical advice, please talk to your healthcare provider to get that advice. Um, just where we're having a candid conversation around uh, genomics and whatnot, I'll just ask you this question, because I, I don't know if you have been uh, seeing more of this in your practice uh, recently or not, but in our... Um, clinic, we've just been getting more folks who saw this kind of viral TikTok something or other clip. There's this <clears throat> fellow out there who was on a very popular podcast and was talking about how, you know, like if you take methylated B12, like you're just, or sorry, methylated folate, um, you're just going to, if you have the MTHFR mutation, like you're just going to feel like a million bucks is kind of the take home message. And, and while over my years of practice, I have seen some patients do, you know, very, very well when they get on some MTHFR or sorry, on some MTHF, if they have the MTHFR mutations, um, it, it's usually not like a night and day difference, like heavens open up and a person feels like a million bucks. Um, again, I've seen it, but just not, not as often as might be implied by some. So I'm just wondering, just out of, for curiosity's sake, how often is methylation support something that, you know, makes like a huge difference uh, for your patients and, and could, and uh, in what way? I love these kind of questions. I'm always trying to do this type of math in my head from an estimation perspective. Mm. 
Um, I would, you know, without actually doing a true internal study, right. Where I'm pulling data, mm. I would guess about 50% of the time, like it definitely helps sometimes mm. now from that standpoint, I also, you know, in that 50% where I find that it helps, I'm also including in my mind, the people that we've never tested MTHFR, but they just might have a B deficiency, you know, B vitamin deficiency and a folate deficiency, because I think that's true for so many people. And, you know, especially because we do use so many of these B vitamins for detox and in the type of clientele that we both work with, people are obviously like the way I like to describe it to people is that detox is energetically expensive because we use so many vitamins and minerals. We use so many of these foundational building blocks to actually get toxins out. So it, it actually costs the body a lot. And so from a standpoint of that, you know, how much of that, say 50% that I see improvement on, how much of that is truly due to the MTHFR, you know, mutation versus like, hey, this is just somebody that is burning through these B vitamins just purely because of necessity from detox. Mm. I feel like that's a little bit hard to determine. The other thing to add here is B2 riboflavin is a cofactor for the MTHF, you know, gene or for the MTH uh, enzyme. Hmm. So when we are actually activating that enzyme and we're needing that enzyme is taking the folate from food and, and turning it into that methylated form, we can't do that without riboflavin. And so that's another curiosity for me is like, sometimes when I put people on riboflavin instead of methylfolate, sometimes I see improvement there. And so I think so much of it is so much beyond genetics. It depends upon how much the body is utilizing. If the body is also deficient in other things like B2, there's other deficiencies. So I think, and that's what I think I find frustrating sometimes about the MTHFR conversation is it just, it's so reductionistic. Mm. And I feel like there's just so much more to the story than that. And I think it really leads people astray to be like, oh, I have this thing. If I just take this one nutrient, everything's going to be better. And mm. I think people can get you know, disappointed a lot of times that way. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Um, I didn't mean to talk to you about genetics the whole time, but I just have one more question and <laughs> maybe another one after this, no, no promises, problem. but I've just got one other one. Cause, um, so I've, uh, heard statistics and I, I can't uh, say that I've rigorously fact-checked this, but I've heard it from like Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Ben Lynch, you know, pretty reputable guys in the, you know, docs in the field of uh, genomics, um, say things to the, and I'm not speaking for them, of course, but paraphrasing what I understood is that, um, a vast majority of our methylation resources go towards, um, creating, uh, creatine and, uh, phospholipids, uh, phosphatidylcholine in particular. And <clears throat> I'm just wondering if, um, uh, assuming that those are numbers that you've heard as well, those are important methylation byproducts. I'm just wondering if you've seen creatine and or phospholipids, um, like phosphatidylcholine as supplements or, uh, IVs or something like that being, um, well, not IV creatine, but, uh, uh phospholipids anyways, being important yeah. for your patients. I've seen them be, I mean, I use a ton of the phospholipids. Like, I feel like that's just essential part of detox, even beyond methylation, even just from thinking about like a cellular rebuilding standpoint and a, you know, bile standpoint, there's so many different things these phospholipids do. So I do use, I do use um, choline and other phospholipids in a lot of my clients, almost frankly, almost all of them. So I definitely see that as being a component, uh, important part you know, creatine, like my understanding of the biochemistry is that creatine winds up sparing SAMI and SAMI is that major methyl donor of the body. So, you know, chemically speaking, and we look at the science, it makes sense that when we take creatine, 
we don't use as much SAMI to make the creatine. And therefore we have more SAMI available to do other methylation processes around the body. And I haven't used like a ton of creatine in my practice, not because of a standpoint of thinking like it doesn't affect, you know, people, but just, it's one of those supplements that because it's oftentimes in a powder, I have not found the compliance with it in the same sort of way. So I haven't focused on it just because it's been something that unless people are really into using it for muscle growth and it's like that type of clientele, which is not the type of client that I tend to get most commonly in my practice. Mm -hmm. It's just not something that I've seen that of all the different things people are taking that uh, is, you know, something that people really follow through on, but the science behind it makes sense to me when I look at it. Makes sense to me too. Um, I've I've gone down that path with a number of patients, uh, just saying like, hey, like you're on a protocol. You know, we're supporting your mitochondria comprehensively. We're on top of the root cause factors. Um, you know, you're moving in the right direction. But let's see if we can get you there faster. So please try some ribose, or please try some PQQ, or please try some creatine. I'm just kind of bringing in like a single new variable. I I love doing that in practice because my left brain just rejoices uh, whenever something like that is done. Um, good old empiricism. And um, <laughs> I, I've uh, certainly had some patients where creatine has made a notable difference, um, but it's not like a huge return on investment. I find mm -hmm. like, uh, I think the number needed to treat to see a benefit, like an appreciable benefit is, you know, maybe like in the realm of maybe like 10 to 15 kind of thing. So um, just, just a little clinical tidbit. Um, but uh, that being said, um, if you play with it and have different response, I'd be curious to hear about it, but yeah, the compliance is sometimes an issue. Um, as far as the phospholipids go, um, I'm kind of on a bit of a phospholipid kick lately. Um, and, um, I, I've tried phospholipids in a, an analogous manner to how I just described the creatine ribose, et cetera, um, gone through a few different phases and like, just oftentimes didn't really see a whole lot of benefit. Um, much to my chagrin tried, you know, IV phospholipids every like two years, I'd be like, okay, Paul Anderson's talking about these again. And like, I should probably try some lipid replacement therapy and like, just like, just like swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss. Not for everybody. Some folks do well, but not more, more misses than, than home runs. And, um, so recently I've been, um, on a bit of a kick cause, uh, have you heard of a product line called body bio? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I've kind of been giving them another try and I'm starting to see some encouraging results. I'm not quite to the point where I'm ready to have a podcast episode about it, but, um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. And so I'm just wondering with that long preamble out of the way, uh, bearing in mind that I've been hurt before by phospholipids. So please, uh, you know, just, just give it to me straight here. Um, what are your, uh, do you mind sharing like kind of go-to brands or products that you might uh, recommend and, and kind of what you've seen from phospholipid uh, supplementation? I've actually used a reasonable amount of the body bio one. So that's okay. great that you're going down that road. And the other main one I've used is Quicksilver's. So oh, okay. yeah. What's, and I just, I'm a huge a, Quicksilver fan. What's that? Me, me too. Uh, what, uh, what's their product called? Pure PC. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And they use so many phospholipids in basically all of their products since they're mm -hmm. liposomal and right. So that's, yeah. That's a huge part of all their products. So I feel like even when I'm giving their liposomal glutathione, for example, people are still getting an element of the phospholipids, mm -hmm. but I do for a lot of people combine them with that pure PC. And, you know, and some of what I'm curious about with like the mixed results is like, is this because of a phospholipid, like, like, is it because of like a cellular wall issue, right? Where it's like, there's toxins and there's all these problems with the cellular wall. And as we give more phospholipids and the cellular wall repairs, 
perhaps then there's a huge level of toxic load dump. Like I, I wonder when you're with what you're seeing, and this is like total theoretical, right? And this is not like something I read in a study or anything, just theorizing on what you're talking about here. Just wondering if what you're seeing with that and, and the results you've had that are mixed could be in part because of like a true Herxheimer reaction. Do you think that's possible? Um, it's typically not really been like a flare up kind of thing. It's been more of just like, uh, and I don't really feel any different being on these. Um, but from what I've understood, um, from, you know, uh, I interviewed, um, there's a, a nutritionist from, um, out in Calgary here, also in Canada and, uh, her name is Justine Stenger. And, uh, we had a chat several months ago and, um, she was talking about how the quality of the body bioproducts is quite a bit different than other ones. So like, I'm, mm. I'm all for like, um, trying to get my patients the best results for the uh, most in the most cost-effective way possible, as I'm sure you know many of us out there are striving to do. Um, yes. So it's like, oh, I look on paper and it's like, yeah, I could get the. I, I mean, I wasn't familiar with Pure PC, but I used to recommend. I think it was called Optimal PC by Seeking Health. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I could prescribe that, or like just get some sunflower lecithin, and that's way cheaper. And just we don't have to pay importation costs because it's an American company and various reasons. Um, and so I'm my th working theory right now. Um, assuming that I continue to see better effects with body bio or other higher quality phospholipid um, products is uh, that maybe I was just using like recommending products that were just not high enough quality um, would be mm. my is my prevailing theory right now because I yeah. was just like oftentimes a whole lot of nothing um, except in the rare cases where we saw something but but um, yeah because I I love Quicksilver as well we can't easily get Quicksilver here in Canada. There's another company called Designs for Health. They kind of put their label on some Quicksilver products so we can get those. I don't right, know that yeah. we can get the pure PC, but I'll, I'm going to look into it now that we've talked about it. Um, kind of dosing wise, um, body bio versus pure PC, like is it comparable dosing or is one more potent than the other in your experience? Not, I haven't really noticed anything that I can say dose by dose equivalent. And the reason I feel like for me, like I start so many people at just like minuscule doses of everything, mm -hmm. right? Because of such a high level of reactivity. So I don't feel like I can say from one standpoint to another around like, oh, I can really compare just because of how so many of my patients wind up. Like I have like my, you know, goal optimum doses around like, oh, this is where I see people, you know, maybe getting to that, that say upper limit, right? But so many people don't wind up getting there. So I don't, I don't truly have a, a true comparison. I just start low and see where people get to a point where they are tolerating it and not herxing and, you know, and feeling good on the products. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and now this is turning into the genetics phospholipid episode, but that, that's okay. <laughs> Cause I'm having a great time. Hopefully you don't you mind do. chatting about this stuff. Wonderful. So hopefully people enjoy uh, these topics. Um, so you mentioned uh, earlier that the vast, I think you said the vast majority of your patients are on phospholipids. So just when you're prescribing those, um, would you mind just, uh, talking a bit about your rationale of like, you know, when you're thinking of bringing this in, like, it's like, are you thinking, yeah, yeah, I'll just, I'll just open it to question there and then we'll, we'll see what you say. Yeah, I tend to start with foundational stuff first. So like when you were talking earlier about, you know, deribose and PQQ and like these mitochondria support, that's actually oftentimes one of the first places I start is let's do some thyroid support, some adrenal support, some mitochondria support, you know, using lab tests before we make any of those decisions. But I have found, and, and again, I just always feel like I want to hyperemphasize for people around like, 
These are patterns, but they're not rules, right? So there's not everybody goes by the same through the same system. But but as a general rule, I have found that I I really think that people have a easier time uh, detoxing and going through killing protocols and other things when we've like worked on restoring some of these deficiencies and these hormone imbalances first. So I will tend to do that for a lot of people, especially if we see things like, you know, DHEA at a 50 or cortisol at a seven, right? These really, really low levels of these hormones. And I'm talking AM cortisol for that, AM serum cortisol for that number. But essentially, so from there, that's when I would tend to, after that, go into more of like a choline protocol, a detox protocol. I tend to do some of the detox most commonly before killing infections, just also thinking of like the thinking process with there is like helping the body get rid of the toxins that are already present before we kill things and they release their biotoxins and we have more toxic load. So once I tend to go through the building, the adrenals, the mitochondria, the thyroid, we can throw sex hormones in there as well. And then oftentimes at that point, that's when I would do more choline and binders and bilia, you know, other types of biliary biosupport and those sorts of things. Oh, sorry. I had to mute myself again. Kids are getting rowdy again. Um, thank you for explaining that rationale. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, I'm just wondering, and uh, again, just you're 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 spinning some good yarns here, and I just really appreciate your clinical rationale, Deanne. I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, just speaking to what are your um, like? How did you? What, what were some of the key? Uh, I guess like educational resources or training um, that you did outside of your your naturopathic training, as we were talking about uh, before the recording, you know, we learn a lot of great foundational stuff in naturopathic school, but if you want to get into complex chronic illness, by golly, you got to do extra training beyond that. I know some um, colleagues listen to these podcast episodes as well, and I'm sure folks yeah. in general would be curious. So would you mind sharing some of your, uh, you know, what's been instrumental in your education up to this point? Yeah. I mean, my, I feel like my, the, one of the thought leaders in the field that I resonate the most with is Dr. Klinghart. So I've taken most, at least at the time when I started doing Lyme, I know he's probably had a lot out since then, but I've taken most of his trainings. Mm -hmm. So it was huge. His work was hugely fundamental. Um, I went out and I've studied with a few random other people. I did a day with Dr. Sean Naylor locally, Dr. Julie Barter. So I've just, I've shadowed other types of Lyme clinicians. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it's also just, you know, reading research papers, doing various like CEUs that come, you know, our way online and, uh, what else, um, you know, then reading, you know, books like Stephen Buner's and studying things like even from a Chinese medicine perspective, which doesn't have a lot to say about Lyme, but in Chinese medicine, a lot of the research is on um, leptospirosis, which is actually a similar type of microorganism as Lyme disease is. So, you know, applying, taking like, okay, well, Chinese herbs and the way we look at the energetics of leptospirosis, and because it's a very similar microorganism, then actually applying some of that theory to, to Lyme disease as well. So those are the main ways, but I'm always, you know, I'm always learning and studying and talking to fellow colleagues like you. And I think some of like, once we get this foundation, I think that's why, you know, the podcast you're doing is super important because so much of like, once that huge amount of foundation gets laid, then it's just, it's talking to other clinicians and being like, oh, you have, you know, this is your angle. And that's a different way I've looked and looking at this mm -hmm. and really just continuing to share ideas with, you know, other people like yourself. Yeah. It's always really, 
inspiring. And uh, I find that when I go to conferences, especially like say the Forum for Integrative Medicine or the ICI conference or something like that, like half of it is just chatting with folks between sessions or over lunch and like, oh, you learn like about half of your pearls and tidbits from that, the other half from the lectures. So yeah, it's always exactly. nice to be part of those think tanks. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And when I first started um, getting into complex chronic illness, like Dr. Klinghart was my my like North Star, like uh, my wife, who's a naturopathic doctor as well. Like we just bought as many DVDs as we could, went to his live trainings. Yep. And yeah, he's just a yeah wealth wealth of info. So and continues to put out so much stuff. I can't keep up with yeah. him, but yeah, he's, yeah. he's great. So that, yeah, that's fantastic. He really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not surprised that. you have that background as well, seeing that we, you know, have so many similarities in the way we treat it sounds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned uh, Stephen Buhner as well, and that's a good segue, well, maybe a good segue into uh, just asking you about just kind of getting a little more reductionistic here, but let's say you've covered the foundational factors of a person's health, you know, dealt with any concomitant things, or there's those miraculous cases where there isn't, you know, um, a bunch of co-infections and mold and histamine intolerance issues, et cetera, going on. But if you were kind of going to piece together just a, an anti-Borrelia a protocol, say like a persistent Borreliosis, not just an acute uh, Lyme or, you know, sort of stereotypical Lyme. I'm just uh, wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing some of the agents that you'd uh, consider bringing into the mix for more of a antimicrobial immunomodulating, et cetera, perspective to kind of focus more specifically on Lyme. On Lyme. Yeah, I really love the company BioPeer for Lyme. So in speaking of certain agents, I do think it's important to mention companies just from the standpoint of like what I've noticed about, about products. And so BioPeer has a product called Cocktail, which is a combination of a lot of different herbs, including a lot of the herbs that Stephen Buhner talks about, our Japanese knotweed and our cat's claw, for example. And I like combining that with Cryptolepis. And Cryptolepis is, if I had to like pick, come down and pick one herb, and I do not recommend we treat the Lyme with one herb, mm -hmm. but if I had to come and pick like my favorite herb across the board to treat Lyme, it's Cryptolepis. And, and so they have a really, really powerful one. So I love combining cocktail and crypt Cryptolepis. And what makes Cryptolepis so amazing is it really works at those pers persister forms and those dormant forms those and those intracellular forms. And oftentimes we see antibiotics and even things like doxycycline that does such a great job of removing that active form of Lyme from the blood but also can convert those Lyme microorganisms, the Borrelia microorganisms, into those other types of cystic and, and dormant forms, right? And Cryptolepis does an amazing job at really getting at those forms. And I think that's one of the reasons it's been so successful. So like an example of a common treatment I will use is cocktail combined with Cryptolepis, combined with hyaluronic acid, also pulling from a, you know some of the things that I learned from Klinghardt around Lime and living in the joints and using, you know, and like, cause the hyaluronic acid is one of the things that can feed the lime. So then using that hyaluronic acid, the way I describe it to my clients is like, this is basically lime bait. We're like giving it same time. So we're drawing it out of the joints. So we're having it in like the blood and the extracellular spaces where the herbs are so that the herbs are actually able to work. And it's almost like not chasing the lime away and, you know, and speaking very simplistically. Yeah, I think I think Buner might talk about hyaluronic acid supplements too in his book yeah. as well. Because yeah, yeah, I yeah. <laughs> across that too. But yeah, it's a, it's a very smart idea um, to do that. Um, and yeah, cryptolepis, like it's great. Like I could write an ode to cryptolepis, and um, I'm sure uh, you probably felt 
I'm assuming you felt in a similar way when, you know, for, for years in clinical practice, like ah, cryptolepis is just awesome. Like it's so strong. And then uh, within the last few years, there were those couple of Petri data, like in vitro studies showing like which herb comes out uh, heads and, uh, you know, shoulders above everything else, like ah, cryptolepis, you know, hits it in every single form, gets at the co-infection. So yeah, it's, it's amazing yeah. stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. That is one of the studies I'm referring to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm just out of curiosity. Um, Cause I remember at one point, I think, is uh, the late Stephen Buhner's uh, significant other, uh, I think Judy or Julie, I can't remember her last name now. She she came and uh, taught a course here locally. And uh, be I believe, I'm, I don't speak for her, but I'm paraphrasing um, that. I was like, you know, uh, what would be like the backup if we couldn't get Cryptolepis anymore? Because heaven forbid it should happen. Um, but uh, I believe if memory serves, she was saying it was um, the herb Noclea. I'm just wondering if you've ever used Noclea before. No, I've not. But thank you. This is like, every time I I'm on a podcast, I like always have like my favorite takeaway. So <laughs> I think you just gave it to me. So hey. I'm not I don't I don't actually use that particular herb. Okay. It uh, it tastes as bad as cryptolepis, um, which Amazing. is yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know it's got to be good if it tastes that bad. But yeah, exactly. I think it's Af African peach pit or something like that is the common name for it. But yeah. Okay. Anyways, we've we've used that in tinctures too, and I I can't say that it's you know better than cryptolepis but i anyways i just feel better having that noclea in my dispensary just in case you know for a rainy yes. day yes so, thank you so much for that i sure. really appreciate that that yeah. pearl yeah my, my pleasure um and uh just wondering as well like as far as uh lyme pathophysiology goes um are there specific things that you bring into the mix to kind of help with the more immunomodulation side of things where lyme can kind of and co-infections can kind of hijack our immune system kind of push us into more of that TH2 dominant mode and just wondering if there's any specific immunomodulators that you like to use in Lyme or co-infection cases. I haven't seen in doing Lyme work that I've needed to use things all the time, right? That way, because what I've seen is like when we're actually treating some of the underlying like other toxins for a lot of people, I've seen like that stuff winds up working its way out. But resveratrol, if I'm going to use one, resveratrol is a very common one that I will use. Um, grape seed sometimes will be used as well, but it's really not, I haven't found that to be a common thing that I've needed. Like most of the time I find that if I'm working on the other building blocks and really supporting like the, you know, the micronutrient levels that, that oftentimes those kind of things and any sort of inflammatory processes and the markers that we're tracking, I've seen a lot of those change on their own. So not a, not a time. What about you? I'm curious. Um, I mean, when I first started, um, you know, devouring the Stephen Buhner books and was like, oh, this is like, this is like my Lyme and co-infection Bible uh, or Bibles. Cause there's a few books, but, um, <laughs> I went down the rabbit hole and I was like, okay, like every patient's going to be on, you know, with their consent and if they're agreeing to it and everything, of course, but, um, you know, we're going to get the antimicrobials in there. We're going to get the immunomodulators. We're going to get the organ supports in there. Um, mm -hmm. and so I just had everybody on like, you know, multiple tinctures and, and it was working well. Uh, but then over time it was kind of like, ah, when the patient would run out of this or that, it's like they ran out of their antimicrobial prematurely and they flared. That would happen semi-regularly. They ran out of their organ support prematurely and virtually never flared. And then they ran out of their immunomodulating tincture, rarely flared. And then got to the point where it's like, well, you know, Chinese skullcap, it's a good antimicrobial and an immunomodulator. There's a twofer, um, you know, they're Japanese knotweed, same thing. And so I now just kind of bring those immunomodulators in sort of naturally, but haven't found I needed sort of targeted immunomodulating herbs or, or other supplements per se. Um, the one kind of asterisk there would be, um, I'm a pretty big fan of, that's putting it mildly. I'm a very big fan of low-dose immunotherapy um, in mm -hmm. that 
when it works, it's just magic and not everybody needs it. Um, but that would be the one exception where some patients just that's the, the missing piece of the puzzle for them. But as you're as you're nodding and smiling, um, do you have uh, experience with LDI yourself or thoughts on that? Patients use it with good success. It's not a huge thing that I do in my practice, but it's like one of the side it's like some of these other types of therapies, like the LDI, as well as, you know, even things like Rife Machine, like mm. I've seen them to be very, very supportive therapies or not huge things that I, you know, am like, are sorry, interwoven into my particular protocols. Sure. But when people ask about them, you know, I tend to be pretty supportive because I have seen positive things and I haven't seen, you know, anything in those, you know, with LDI or with Rife, for example, where it's like, oh, this is like the stand all be all you can do this and nothing else and get healed. But I haven't seen that with any single therapy that it's really the combination of everything that, you know, is where the magic happens. Yep. I keep yeah. waiting for that therapy and then Me I'll be too. able to retire and say, just do that and everything's fixed. But yeah, it hasn't happened yet. So maybe one of these yes. days. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we're um, all, we're all pulling for that. <laughs> indeed. Um, well, just as our time's starting to wind down here, Diane, there's a couple of questions that I like to um, uh, ask guests if we have time. And I'm particularly curious because again, we're, we're very uh, similar clinicians. So I'm really curious, extra curious about your answers here. Um, so I'm just wondering, um, uh, what are some of the things that you're the most excited about in practice right now? Like maybe things that are kind of new to your practice or things that you're looking into or, um, yeah, just things that are kind of on more of the cutting edge of your, uh, of your clinical brain. I'm really excited about anything involving working on the mind and the nervous system, because another thing I feel like I've seen in practice is the people that have those recurrences, right? The people that show up my door is like, I was symptom free from Lyme. And all of a sudden, 10 years later, all of my symptoms that were Lyme like are back or people that were in my practice and they left in their well in like two or three years, they come, you know, on my, you know, knocking on my door again, which I say in quotes, cause I don't have a brick and mortar. I'm all online, but you know, from that standpoint, the, the biggest reason why I see those things happen is stress. Like it's not the only thing, right? People can move into a moldy place. They can move into, you know, some sort of other place. They can get a parasite and that can wreak havoc. There's a lot of things that can really create that resurgence. Mm -hmm. But the number, if I were to like name one thing across the board, it really is in the mind and the nervous system and how easily we can in stressful states get our stress, as we all know, is like a part of human existence. We all experience stress at various levels in our lives. So it really comes down to like, you know, remove stressors when you can, but what can we do to actually change how the mind is oriented to the stressor and how the mind processes and, you know, processes and deals with the stressor. And so, you know, there's a lot of great, you know, great programs out there. I really love Gupta's program. I'm hearing a lot of patients do really well with Primal Trust program, the Safe and Sound program. So there's a lot of great programs out there. I've developed a system internally called Hack Your Mind that I really only use on my patients, but it's I've practiced Qigong and meditation since 2004, so 20 years now, I guess. And I've done so much studying on the mind and the nervous system and, and these sorts of techniques. So a lot of how I've learned and a lot of how I've been taught is developed into my own personal program. But like what I really tell people is I don't really care what program you use. I want you to have something that you resonate with, that you enjoy so that you do it on a regular basis. 
whether it's like you get resonance with mine or you get resonance with another one, it doesn't matter to me. I just want people to do something because I really feel like that nervous system component is it's like simple. So when we're saying cutting edge, it's almost a funny thing to say because, you know, there's so many more like advanced types of things, you know, people are doing exosomes and people are doing stem cells and people are doing hyperthermia treatments. And, you know, there's all these different types of things out there, you know, that's so T like I mentioned, but at the same time, the people that I see with the recurrence it's not because of like some revolutionary therapy. It really comes down to most commonly, like how regulated they're keeping their nervous system. Yeah. Um, so many of my guests have been saying that and, and I'm mostly interviewing folks that are in the complex chronic illness world and have been at it for quite a while. So yeah, uh, just when I like to emphasize to the audience, like pay attention, please audience. Once again, like this is a really important thing. And um, I'm, I couldn't agree more. Um, I've been um, several months ago, we just brought uh, brain mapping and neurofeedback into our clinic and just Amazing. loving that. That's making a big difference. And um, yeah, just for the longest time, like I, I made up my own uh, kind of rendition of amygdala retraining because just some folks are like, I can't get through like 20 DVDs and, you know, 20 hours of training. It's like, okay, here's the pared down version. And like, yeah, just couldn't agree with you more that uh, nervous system regulation support. So, so key. What's been really fascinating is seeing that I've had uh, several patients now where, you know, they've done like everything under the sun, like, you know, treated for mold and metals and Lyme and co-infections, like everything you can think of supporting their mitochondria at the wazoo, maybe not enough phospholipids, that's something I'm working on, but, um, and you know, they're like feeling better, but like maybe they're only 70% better, which is pretty darn good, but like still not hundred percent. And we'll look at their brain map and see like, and they're thinking like, there must still be like some biofilms There's some still stuff. There's still stuff that we're missing. And then we look at the um, brain maps and, and sometimes like, yeah, we still see signs of neuroinflammation and whatnot. It's like, okay, what are we missing here? But probably 90% of the time now it's been like, no, your brain looks healthy as can be like on a, you know, sort of anatomical structural level, but, um, you, your nervous system is stuck in sympathetic mode. You're like sympathetic dominant, um, despite your best efforts. So like, that's what we need to work on. It's like really, uh, fascinating and vindicating and a good old confirmation bias to like, kind of see that on paper. It's like, well, cause it's when it's theoretical, it's like, well, maybe Dr. Aid, but I, I don't know really. But then it's like, okay, I guess the piece of paper is telling me that we probably need to work on that nervous system now. So it's been a really nice segue to help encourage folks to work on that level of things. Um, Dr. Diane, uh, we're, we're running down on time here. Um, if you wouldn't mind sharing with folks, um, how they can uh, get in touch with you. You mentioned you have a virtual practice. How can folks work with you? Um, do you have any online offerings? Where can they find you on social media? Um, would you mind uh, telling us about those things, please? Yeah, absolutely. So the easiest thing, I have a URL that's super memorable, even though we'll put everything in the show notes, like you said. So mm -hmm. if you go to solvesickness.com, you'll actually find a free video ebook. So it's an ebook I put together in total video format because I find people in the chronic disease world can't always have the, the brain, you know, the brain fog so strong sometimes that listening is oftentimes and watching is oftentimes easier than reading. So solvesickness.com is where you'll, where you'll find that. My practice is at mylinedoc.com. So also pretty easy to remember. And I have a couple of different options. Like people do come to the state if, you know, once a year, if they want a 
know, if they want a one-on-one visit, but I have group programs that are basically educational and self-guided, very, very low price points. And that's how I support people internationally is through my group education programs. And then I also have training programs for docs. So if you're listening to this and you're, you know, wanting to learn more about how to treat this, I have also very, very low price um, training programs to really you know, try to help spread the word of this as, as easy as possible. So if you go to solvesickness.com, you can find my ebook, mylime.com is my website. And if you get confused, just Google Dr. Diane Mueller and you'll find everything you need there. Amazing. Great. And any social media or uh, are you, are you helping your oh, nervous yeah. system? I'm, by I'm on most social media, Instagram okay. at my Lime doc, Facebook at my Lime doc, YouTube okay. at my Lime doc. So okay. my Lime docs, your, your ticket to find That's me. From the one. Man, oh, man. There's some, <laughs> there's some consistent branding folks. That's uh, very, very nice and, and just easier on people's nervous systems. You don't have to remember as much. So exactly. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Diane, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was a uh, Great pleasure, and I'm glad uh, glad you took the time. So uh, much much obliged. Thank you, thank you so much, Dr. Reid. It's really a pleasure to speak with you and see so much so much congruence in how we practice in the world. Yeah, it was it was great. Well, uh, and thank you, folks, for listening to this episode of Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. Um, hope that you enjoyed it, and please stay tuned for the next one. <laughs>